Let's pray together. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I pray, Lord, that as we come into this time where we hear your word together, that we would not simply be hearers, but doers of the word. Recognizing your own testimony about your word, that you say it's living and active, so it's not a dead word. It is probing our hearts, it's challenging, it's comforting, it's convicting, but it does not leave us the same. And so, Father, we pray that we would come under your word and that you would give us soft hearts. Illumine our hearts by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I would ask, if you are able, to please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, The passage upon which our teaching is based this morning, we're continuing our study of the opening chapters of the book of Romans, and so we are up to chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. So friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Growing up, my family and I were not too, too involved in the church. And I'm talking about like when I was a young kid and middle school and high school. I guess if I had to refer myself some way I would say I was a functional deist. Now, I don't know if you know what a deist is, so if not, I'll give you a little bit of teaching of history, but deism was that belief that basically believed in the existence of God, but their view of God was God kind of made everything, and then the illustration they would use is he set it in motion like a clock to basically just run itself. So in other words, believed in the existence of God, so not quite a agnostic or atheist in that sense, believed in the existence of God, but then God kind of leaves us alone to do what we want to do. And that was kind of, that's not necessarily how I was raised, but that's kind of what I picked up. So I'm blaming myself in terms of this until I got into high school. And in high school, I started to get involved in the ministry that was called Young Life. And God used Young Life to draw me to himself, to open my heart. And I can remember being in high school and walking the halls my senior year in high school and seeing what I considered at that time was to be an old guy. He was maybe 35 or 40. Now I go, you kid, you know? But at 18, when I was this cocky, snot-nosed 18-year-old walking through the halls of the high school, my mind kind of went like this. What's the old dude doing here? What does he want? And then he was reaching out to me to talk to me, to become friends. And of course, the trusting sort that I am, I was kind of like, what is up with him? What does he want? And I was asking myself, I wasn't, at least I was smart enough not to verbalize all these questions. But I'm kind of thinking, this is weird. What's up with this dude? 
I'm really asking, can I trust him? I'm asking, does his life match up with what he's telling me? In other words, he's making these claims to me. He's proclaiming the gospel. I didn't really recognize it at at the time. But there was something where I was going, does his life make his claims and does his life demonstrate that what he's saying is, if not perfect, because I knew not to expect that, but does it make it plausible? Or to put it another way, PCA pastor Scott Sauls has recently written a new book, and the book's called Irresistible Faith. And he writes this, this is kind of his subtext underneath, he says, What if Christians became the best advertisement for Jesus? Now think about that, because there's a lot of things that's not saying. We're not Jesus. We don't pretend to be. What does an advertisement do? It points. Theologian Michael Goheen says, if we're called to be witnesses, we're called to be a pointing people. Saul's in his introduction to his book, though, says, he says, these days... The word Christian seems to evoke as many negative reactions as it does positive ones. And he writes, this bothers me. And he asks the question, does it bother you? He says, critics might summarize their feelings about Christians with these words historically attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Or to give another example that he cites, he says, and painfully, especially coming from an adult Christian convert who then became disenchanted with her church. The Vampire Chronicles author Anne Rice wrote, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. And Saul's concludes as a forgiven, loved, and spirit-filled people, we can do better, can't we? Now, I'm not asking whether we agree or disagree with what the sentiment of these quotes or not. Maybe we think Anne Rice is all wet, doesn't matter in one sense. This is her testimony of what she's saying. But I want to ask the question that Scott Sauls is asking. Does this bother you? Does this bother us. See, we can all say, well, I know the truth about Christians. Everyone says we're hypocrites, and yes, we are. There's no question about that. We believe, and we actually live out the doctrine of total depravity. But here's the tough question. Do we, yes, acknowledge our brokenness, our flaws, our depravity, our sinfulness, or do we kind of, in our disposition, our attitude, our frame, just kind of basically go, ah, yeah, we're hypocrites, and we're glib about it, and we're not really broken or sad or humbled by it. See, do we listen to the Apostle Paul, who says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. See, we get that part. This is, by the way, I'm reading directly out of Philippians 3 right now. He says, not that I've already obtained this. So Paul's saying, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. 
I'm a chief of sinner. But he says, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He doesn't say I press on to make it my own in order that Christ Jesus may be mine. But he says because Jesus Christ has lived for me, died for me, been risen for me, is ascended into glory for me, and has poured out his spirit to indwell me. Because Jesus Christ has made me my own and I can't get any more forgiven, any more accepted, any more beautiful, any more justified in his sight. That frees me to not have to be insecure or defensive and I can press forward to do things like cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in my life, grow in my becoming more like what 1 Corinthians 13 says. See, do we have even the desire to be a good advertisement for Jesus? This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at here in this section of Romans chapter 2 which we're looking at and exploring this morning. He is talking about the problem of failure. And he's talking about the problem of failure in God's people, the elect, the chosen people of God. See, let's remember the context of this overall section of Paul's letter to the Romans, okay? In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul had basically stated the whole world is caught up into the corruption caused by sin, by the failure of Adam and Eve. It's easy to see how in the blatantly pagan and non-Christian world. See, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 shows clearly the expression of humanity's hostility toward God and turning away from God and plunging into idolatry, the futility of their thinking, sexual immorality, their obvious lostness. Tim Keller calls it irreligion. And it's easy. It's, It's the red light sinfulness. It's easy to see the rupture of communion with God and others. But what about the less obvious? What about those who on the surface appear religious, together, upright, upstanding? For those hearing or reading this letter of the apostle, where does Israel, the chosen people, fit into the picture? What about them? What about God's chosen people? That's the theme of Romans chapter 2. Paul here is talking about an imaginary person. He doesn't have a name attached to it or anything. But he says, if you call yourself a Jew, that means party's not focused on the ethnicity. He's focused on that they are part of the chosen people of God. And he says, if you call yourself a Jew, and then he proceeds to show this person the dangers of their hypocrisy, superiority, pride, and self-importance. Having all the covenant privileges that they have, the Holy Spirit here is warning the people of God of their failure to live out their vocation as God's elect people. Paul teaches us two things in this text that we want to focus on as we explore this. Two words, realize and remember. Realize the danger, remember the purpose of grace. Realize the danger. Look with me at the beginning of this text, verse 17. He says, here's the imaginary person. You call yourself a Jew, meaning you're part of the elect nation. You're part of the people of God. And you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know his will, and you prove what is excellent. All pretty good things, right? Upstanding, upright things. 
because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He, he begins, you call yourself a Jew, and then he goes through all of their covenant privileges. And I want you to notice something here. He does not deny the importance and the reality of any of these privileges. They have the law. They have the Torah. They have the temple. They have the covenant. And Paul's saying these are all good things. They approve what is excellent. They're instructed from the word of God. They're a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. This is all good. So what is the problem? Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? Let's put it in a nutshell. They talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. Paul doesn't say quit talking the talk. He says, but let your life be an advertisement for what you proclaim. Let your life, so that when you admit your depravity, are you broken over your depravity? When you admit your hypocrisy, do you say it glibly? Or is it something that breaks your heart? Are you broken over your sin? He goes, and yes, Paul's using a bit of hyperbole. He's not saying every Jewish person here steals and robs temples and stuff. But, but look at what he's saying. While you preach against stealing, talk the talk, do you yourself steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who hate and abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, and here's the result of it, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Do you realize the danger? Verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, among the non-Christian world, the nations, because of your poor advertisement for God. See, you've forgotten your vocation. You've forgotten the purpose of your being God's elect people. It's almost like you call yourself God's elect, you call yourself God's chosen ones, but you've forgotten the immortal words of Uncle Ben to Peter Parker in the Spider-Man movies. With great power comes great responsibility. Yes, I used a Spider-Man reference. How about that? And you thought every one of my illustrations was about the New York Yankees. I threw out Spider-Man for you. With great power, how much power do we have? Oh, only the Holy Spirit lives within us. To be a pointing people pointing to Jesus. Do we not recognize the responsibility the joyful, free responsibility that comes with being God's elect. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him. Now, we love that part, don't we? Do you know the rest of it? It says to be holy. And do you know what holy means? It means set apart. And set apart for a purpose. Set apart for the purpose of bearing witness to the nations, to the non-Christian world, about the new reality of God. Why did the book of Acts begin 
when Jesus, pouring out the Spirit, or about to pour out the Spirit at Pentecost, what does he say? He says, but you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power when the Spirit comes on to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. See, and it's not really Israel, or us for that matter, that has a mission. We need to understand this. It is God who has a mission. And he happens to have a people, a church, for his mission. We may be sitting here and going, God, I wish you had a plan B. Have you looked at us? We've just talked about how we're not the greatest advertisement for Jesus. Maybe you want to think about, you know, kind of rethink this plan, and God's going, no, I'm going to work through my people. Even the prophets affirmed this back in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah, as the mouthpiece of God, the messenger for God, says, I am the Lord. He's speaking for God. I have called you in righteousness. If you think this is devoid of grace, listen to the next verse. Speaking for God, Isaiah says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. If you think that this vocation is to try to earn us some sort of standing, we've misunderstood the gospel. It's because he takes us by the hand and he keeps us. You can't get more secure than you are in Christ. But because of that, with that great power comes the great responsibility. He says, I will give you, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is their vocation, to be a light to the nations, to bear witness. In other words, we are called to display Jesus by our words and our actions, by our words and our life, we are called to display Jesus by how we relate to others. We are called to be the bearers of God's story to the nations so that the nations will worship God. That's why 20, verse 24 is such an indictment. When he says, the name of God, think about this in light of what I read in Isaiah, the name of God, that God, his name and his glory, God is jealous for. He is protecting the holiness of his name. And because of our poor advertisement for Jesus, the name of God is blasphemed among the non-Christian world. Israel is supposed to be the bearer of that story so that through them the pagan nations will come to worship the true God, to honor his name, to glorify him in all his majesty and splendor and beauty and justice and truth and sovereignty. And yet here is Paul. And I'm going to ask again, does this bother us? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So instead of worshiping and honoring the name of God, the name of God is blasphemed in the non-Christian world. And why specifically? Because as one commentator says, because of our hypocrisy and our self-importance. One commentator in his commentary on the book of Romans says, through his own hypocrisy, self-importance, and so-called superiority, rather than the nations coming to worship God, they blaspheme the name of God. Israel has become the very thing it was warning about, a people immersed in sin. We might say that the beacon of light, designed to warn the approaching ships of the jagged rocks of judgment, is broken. 
and is now pointing the ships in the wrong direction. The physician sent to cure people of the flu looks like he's suffering from the plague. He says, this is what happens when we fail to realize the danger of our failure to love, of our pride, our superiority, our self-importance, how we come across to others. This writer continues, the tragedy is that whenever we become convinced we are better than someone else, we can be mistaken into thinking that we can treat others with disdain. A superiority complex is not like a sense of pride or belief in the strength of one's convictions. A superiority complex is what emerges when the self-perceived rightness of my beliefs and values gives me a license to trample down others who do not share them. When I use my beliefs not as a life preserver to help others, but as a stick to beat up others, then I'm acting out of a sense of superiority. In other words, a sinful sense of superiority derives from pride, not humility, from preaching without listening and conviction without compassion. A self-righteous superiority is what separates a virtuous saint from the moralizing legalist. Oh, may I be the chief repenter of any time I preach without listening, any time. I stand in my convictions without compassion. Notice what he's saying. Have your convictions, but may it never be without compassion. So does this mean God's promises fail? Does this mean that God's word sometime, somehow fails? Absolutely not. This brings us to our final point, and that is remembering the purpose of grace. See, we need to understand and be immersed in God's Word and be immersed in the total story of God's Word. From creation to consummation, the fact that God created the world to be under His rule. He created the world to be in communion with Him. He created the world that there'd be that sense of partnership between us and God, us and other people, us and the world. But because of the sin in Adam and Eve, because of the fall... That's been corrupted. But redemption is God not giving up on humanity. And he chose a people. And in the Old Testament, it was Israel to be the bearer of that good news. But of course, Israel, see, we have to get out of thinking political nations and into thinking people of God, the covenant people of God, the unfolding of this one story. Israel was called to be the people that bore salvation and proclaimed it to the nations, and they failed. But what did Paul write to the church at Corinth? He said, all the promises of God. That means everything from the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way to Revelation, are yes and amen in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of these promises, including the promises to Israel. So in his life, his death his resurrection and his ascension, he fulfilled the covenant promises, both in its negative side, the curses, and in its positive side, its vocation. So if you look with me at verse 24, when Paul speaks here about the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles, he's alluding to several texts out of the Old Testament, including Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. 
And according to commentators, what Paul is doing here is he is likening the current situation of the state of the Jewish people when they were in exile in Babylon. When they were in exile, the people of God, removed from their home, removed from their city, removed from their temple, they were what? Thrust into the non-Christian world in exile so that the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their failure. But Jesus took on and absorbed in himself the failure of God's people, in effect becoming Israel himself going into exile on the cross. Think about what the words mean when Jesus said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he is saying in there is in that moment, he's in exile. He's lost. The curse of the covenant is falling upon him. He's going into the exile on the cross in order to create in himself a new humanity, a reimagined and reconfigured Israel who now can carry on and participate in the mission of Jesus. Hear Paul's words in Galatians in the context of the whole biblical story when he says Christ redeemed us from the curse. That means the covenantal curse by becoming a curse for us. The curse that Israel and us deserved, Jesus became. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So that now through Christ, instead of the Gentiles blaspheming the name of God, the rest of that Galatians verse says, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. In other words, instead of blaspheming the name of God because of Israel, we worship the name of God because of the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Christ fulfilled the mission. Christ fulfilled the vocation so that God's plan did not fail. Christ is the new Adam, the new Israel, who creates a new humanity in himself. And that new humanity is us, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. But practically, what does it mean to live out this text? Our missional identity, our missional purpose, our missional vocation still stands. We are still called to bear and embody and proclaim in word and deed the story of God to the world beginning with our neighbors. As again, one writer says, the most powerful symbol and the most palpable expression of the church's election is their mission to the world as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The church is the people who know God and they go with God as they proclaim the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I love this. This commentator writes, this missional vocation can be lived out in so many different ways, in very ordinary ways. He says, in the prayers for God to open doors for the gospel, or in our financial sacrifice to enable mission, or in the work of chaplains in the armed services 
among those who plant churches in the cities, among those who renew rural congregations, with those who work in refugee camps, and among those who translate the Bible into languages where the word of God has previously not been known. Friends, this is our vocation, and it's a joy to participate in it. We don't do it. Remember, this is God's mission, and he's enlisted us to participate in his mission. He's chosen us before the foundation of the world to set us apart for the sake of the world. And you know, we have, I'm going to close with this, tremendous opportunity right here in Central Florida. Lifeway Research recently, I think it was 2017, did a survey of the most unchurched and de-churched, meaning unchurched, and he defined churched and unchurched as Bible-minded. So they came up with the top 10 cities of the most Bible-minded cities in America, the top 10 cities of the most unbible-minded, I don't know how to say that, dis-bible-minded, not Bible-minded, we'll just go with unchurched, and then the 10 most cities that were de-churched, meaning people who grew up in the church, used to go in the church, and now, like Anne Rice, have nothing to do with the church. Central Florida consisted of the communities ranging from Orlando, like if you go on the Lifeway research, it'll be Orlando, Melbourne, Daytona Beach. So picture what, was that a triangle if you make that? That area. Where do you think we ranked? Do you think we were on the most churched, Bible-minded, or the most unchurched, de-churched size? We were actually ninth in the most unchurched cities or metropolitan areas in the country, and we were sixth in the most de-churched cities or metropolitan areas in the country. You think we have an opportunity before us to maybe live out our missional vocation, be that pointing people, an advertisement for Jesus, knowing that it's Jesus who takes us by the hand and keeps us, we're secure in him. Maybe if we learn to remember the purpose of grace, to be a people bearing witness to the glorious news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom. Father, we pray that your living and active word would shape our ministry and shape our lives. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your spirit, the teaching of your word. And I pray, Father, that we would bear witness to your word and to the gospel in our doings in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.